Well, let us begin. I have so much to cover. I feel like we're behind since I missed last week, but glad to be back and uh, very happy to continue on. I know you had Pastor Frank last week talking about Roman Catholicism. And uh, was it the Eucharist? Is that what he covered? Yeah. Good information? Yeah. Um, transubstantiation. Right. He, he's very skilled at not only knowing that, but how to answer objections and defend the faith against such attacks. We probably will come back to Roman Catholicism as a whole a little bit later. Uh, but let me pray and then we'll open with just a reminder of where we're at here in this class. Lord, we do thank you for your blessings, how you have uh, blessed us to be here this morning, to learn, to grow, to be edified. I pray that this class and, and all the classes, whether adults or children or youth, uh, that all of these classes would edify, would build up, would help us to answer the objections that the world throws at us, the attacks that come against us. Help us to know what the Bible says, to know what it is we believe, to understand the gospel so well that we can uh, throw down those attacks as they come at us and always stand upon the one true word of God. So give us that kind of boldness, Lord. Help us to proclaim your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, before we start here, I have a book giveaway. I happen to have two copies, so I can give one away now. This is B.B. Warfield on the Christian Life. So there's a series now by Crossway, and it goes through different people in church history and what they said about living the Christian life. So here's B.B. Warfield on the Christian Life, Living in Light of the Gospel by Fred Zaspel. So if you haven't won a book in a while, you can answer my question here. Let's pick from the screen here. Who remembers what evidential apologetic method is? What is the evidential method? Anyone? Going back. Stephanie? Right. Evidences. Building up evidences. So here you go. Read it. We'll quiz you on it next week. And it pays to take notes. She had good notes, see? Doesn't actually pay, but you get a free book, so that's like getting paid, right? We're talking about the how. We looked at what is apologetics, the first class and a half, and then briefly why. I think most of us know why we need to defend the faith. We've probably been put in situations where we didn't quite know what to say, how to handle it. Um, we just sort of resorted to, that's what I believe. And, and they said, well, that's what I believe, and we're going to agree to disagree kind of thing. Uh, but the why is we live in a world of unbelief. We live in a, sometimes in a, in a church culture of unbelief. There's a lot of people who say they're Christians, but they're really not. And so whether it's inside the church as a whole in America or outside the church, there's all kinds of attacks against the faith. And I showed you some stats about this area how many different belief systems there are. And I'll have some other stats in the sermon today that, that give us a desire, should hopefully give us a desire to proclaim the gospel. And to do that, we need to be sharp enough to handle some of the things that are thrown at us. And so there's uh, now this discussion of how. And this has taken some time. We're going to spend more time on number five today because we haven't really covered it. But we looked last time I was teaching two weeks ago at the different methods. There's basically five different methods. Uh, hardly anyone uses number four because you have to be a PhD in philosophy to even understand it. And even all of them don't use it. It sounds very nice, reformed, reformed epistemology. But uh, it's basically just a, everyone knows there's a God, they say, so we're not going to mess with that. We're just going to go and make a few positive philosophical statements that back that up. Um, classical, though, this is uh, made famous by R.C. Sproul, uh, John Gerstner, and various people in church history. This is using reason, using a reason argument, a rational argument, typically based on philosophical proofs of God or creation. And then once you believe in God, they say we can then go to the next step and talk about Jesus and the gospel and, and what he did. You'll believe in Jesus, in other words, if you can believe in God. And so their whole focus is there. Then we looked at evidential. This is the most popular today. It's the easiest to think about because you just throw out some evidences, right? Uh, look at this Roman historian who says Jesus was real. Look at this other historian who said Jesus supposedly rose from the dead according to the Jewish people who believed in him. And that's, that's a basic rundown of evidential. 
the problem with one and two and, and even three is that our minds as unbelievers, our minds are, uh, mankind is tainted or depraved, or we say totally depraved, or radically depraved. We're affected by sin. And so people, do people think rationally when they're an unbeliever? No, they suppress the truth. The Bible says they suppress the truth. They push it, they push it down. They twist it. They create their own God so they don't have to worship the one true God who holds them accountable. And so you're not really able to just say, look at all this evidence and expect that the unbeliever is going to say, you know what? You're right. The evidence does point to God. The Bible says all creation points to God. And if they're not going to acknowledge that and suppress that, do you think that a couple of things you found on the internet or in a book is really going to convince the unbeliever? It might make them think a bit. It might make them consider and have a nice conversation. But it's not going to break through. Only the Holy Spirit can do that through the Word of God. And even to defend the faith, we don't just want to pile up evidences. Because guess what they do? They just pile up evidences, right? Well, we have Stephen Hawking, and we have uh, all these atheists, and we have all these scientists, and now we have the telescope, and we have all this, and Darwin. And it's just, it's sort of like who knows more game. Uh, Cumulative approach number three was everything. Uh, This was made famous by C.S. Lewis. Uh, Everything that you can use, use it. Uh, Whether it's argument about morality, uh, evidences, philosophical proofs, what the philosopher said, just use it all. It's, it's an attorney who gets all the evidence that's at his disposal to prosecute the case. Again, 1, 2, and 3, very helpful for the believer. You read some of what C.S. Lewis wrote or even Josh McDowell's rundown of the historical evidence. That's going to build your faith up. You're going to have it confirmed, which you already believe. So, of course, you're going to see the evidence, hopefully, for what it is. And your mind has been redeemed as well as your body. And you're able to think more along the lines of what God would have you think. And even the, the classical method can, can build you up. Uh, you think of the, the cosmological or the teleological proof for the existence of God. Well, of course the earth and, and a universe is designed for a purpose. That makes perfect sense as a believer. But when you're living in your sin as an unbeliever, when you would do anything to justify your sin, you don't care about that. You'll, you'll seek all the proofs that you can come up with and that unbelievers have come up with to fight against that. So now we're on number five, and I believe number five is the best method. It is called presuppositional. If you've heard of presuppositional, raise your hand. Okay. It's a long word, uh, but you know, so are some of these others. And We're going to spend some time covering it. This is what we use here. This is what we teach here. This is standing upon the Word of God to do apologetics. That's essentially what it comes down to. The one thing in common that that 1, 2, 3, and 4 have is they don't base their whole argument on the Word of God. It's something else. It's either reason or evidence or anything or or some sort of uh, reformed philosophy kind of thing. Presuppositionalism says we have our presuppositions found in Scripture, of course, and we stand on that. So that's the main idea here. The main idea is that Christians should presuppose the truth of Christianity. You already do if you're a Christian. You already presuppose the truth. And you should do that when doing apologetics. That's the proper starting point. You never set the Bible aside. What are you standing on once you set the Bible aside? What's your grounds? What's your basis? Your reason? Your intellect? Your evidence? I mean, it's saying, I'm going to set the best tool that I got to talk to the unbeliever, and I'm going to set it aside because they don't believe it, or they say they don't believe it. I'm going to put it aside, and I'm going to use something else. That's like going into war and setting your weapons down and hoping that you're going to win the battle. That is not going to work. The Bible is the framework through which all experience is interpreted and all truth is known. Uh, this, we'll refer back to this book over and over by Cowan. He's the editor uh, of the, the Five Views, I think it is, on apologetics book. Uh, the Bible is the framework. So he's summarizing this view. Uh, here's Norman Geisler, who's a classical guy, but he is now talking about what is presuppositional apologetics. 
He said, it is the apologetic system that defends Christianity. So all of these attempt to defend Christianity, but it's from the departure point of certain basic presuppositions. Things that are assumed. Presuppositions. You presuppose this truth because it's in Scripture. The apologist presupposes the truth of Christianity and then reasons from that point. We're going to reason from the Bible. We're going to reason from the truth that the Bible teaches us. Even if we don't quote verses, we're going to do like Paul did in Acts 17. We're going to speak the truth that is found in Scripture. He didn't have a a verse quote because they didn't use that in ancient times. He didn't say, you know, my Bible says that you worship this God that you don't even know. You try to worship Him, but you search for Him, you grope for Him, you can't really worship Him. No, he's stating that because it's the truth in the Bible. In fact, it's the truth that he would write in Romans 1, which we'll look at in a moment. What's another way of saying it? It's a school of Christian apologetics that attempts to present a rational basis for the Christian faith. Okay, So they're all rational that we've looked at. But the difference is this one's coming from the Bible. Uh, it does, does this by defending the Christian faith against objections and attacking the perceived flaws of other worldviews. So there's still a, an attempt to inform the unbeliever that their worldview is a house of cards. You're still using the Bible to do that. You're not just saying, well, my Bible says, and then here's the gospel. You're, you're still showing them in Scripture or through the words you say, which is a summary of Scripture, that their worldview doesn't stand up. And so you can ask them questions. And sometimes those questions might even sound a little bit like some of the classical arguments. But the difference is they're founded in Scripture. Their basis is in the Bible. Uh, The other method set aside the Bible. So remember that. Classical method sets aside the Bible and goes to the rational arguments, uh, usually from philosophy sometimes from from history. A key distinctive of this approach in presuppositionalism is that the Christian apologist must assume the truth of the Bible in the Christian worldview. There are no neutral assumptions from which to reason with a non-Christian. So if you get much into apologetics, this is a big issue. What's a neutral ground? What's a neutral ground that they will accept so that I can then reason with them, I can then argue with them? Do they accept science? Well, then let's go talk about science. And here's what all the Christian scientists are saying. And they'll say, well, here's what all the atheist scientists are saying. And then others will say, well, let's talk about history. You agree that there's such people as these historians. And let's look at what they wrote. And, and uh, you've probably all seen you know, the, the argument for what uh, Homer said and what Shakespeare said. And look at all the manuscripts we have on them. And we have even more on the Bible. Have you seen that, the bar chart? I think we'll look at it later when we talk about the Bible. But trying to find neutral ground. What's the problem with neutral ground? The unbeliever, they don't care. They're going to look at that, and it's not neutral ground for them. You actually just set aside your best weapon and stepped into their court. Why would you do that? Why would you set that aside? You need to follow the Scriptures, and the Scripture says there's no neutral ground. You're either with me or against me. You're either Christ or you're not. You either acknowledge the truth or you don't. There's no middle ground. There's no lie, truth, and, you know, somewhere in between. There's not. Uh, There's truth and untruth. So again, coming from this book, Five Views on Apologetics, uh, to summarize the view, presuppositionalists, long word to describe the person who is holding to the presuppositional method, attempts then to argue transcendentally, trying to argue above the things that are normally discussed, transcendentally. That is, they argue that all meaning and thought, indeed every fact, logically presupposes the God of the Scriptures. You can't even speak to the unbeliever without God being behind all that and creating us and creating our ability to talk and setting up everything. By demonstrating that unbelievers cannot argue, think, or live without presupposing God, presuppositionalists try to show unbelievers that their own worldview is inadequate to explain the experience of the world and to get unbelievers to see that Christianity Christianity alone can make sense of their experience. How are you even able to think rationally? 
Where does that come from? Where does the ability to speak as, as an unbeliever, uh, to think and argue, where does that come from? Is that a, some sort of evolved thing? No, it, it comes from the ability that God has given us to do that. He is transcendental. He is not only behind all things, but above all things, and makes all things uh, able and humanity to happen, and decrees it. We could even go further if we wanted to. What else can we say about presuppositional method? Well, if the Bible is God's word, and we know that it is, then to what more authoritative standard could one possibly appeal to in order to defend it? If we're defending Christianity, we need the Bible to do that. We don't go over here and talk about something else when we're defending Christianity. Not only does God not call Christians to put the authority of his word on the shelf, Michael Kruger says, while they argue for Christianity, but doing so will deny the very thing they're setting out to prove. Namely, that God's word should be the authority over every area of thought, including apologetics. Paul made everything about the gospel. That was his mission in life. And where did he go? We're going to see again today in the sermon. Where did he go? He went to his Bible to prove his point. And he had direct revelation from Christ. And sometimes he, he wrote that down and stated that. But often he's pointing to the Old Testament. Genesis fifteen six. Abraham was counted righteous based on his faith because he believed in God. He goes to the Bible. And you might say, well, that's because he was talking to Jews. Well, he was also talking to Gentiles when he wrote the book of Romans. And when he's writing to the Gentiles, does he set the Bible aside? Read Galatians. The church, churches in Galatia were a Gentile mostly. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Maybe they know it and maybe they don't. It doesn't matter. He's going to use the authoritative Word of God. And so God never tells us to set aside His authority, to set aside His Word, and go around about a neutral path to try to get back to proving that He exists or that Christ and the Gospel are real. So we talked about presuppositional. You have these presuppositions. What are they? Basically, they boil down to three main presuppositions. If you're going to do this, you need to have these three. First of all, you're a believer in Christ. How can you argue for the truth if you're not a believer in Christ? You can try, and there, and there might be some presuppositionalists who are unbelievers, and there probably have been. But to do this for the glory of God, you have to be a believer in Christ. Regenerate. We saw that in 1 Peter 3.15. As well as number two, you're committed to the Lordship of Christ. So it's not enough just to be saved, but you also need to acknowledge, look, Jesus is Lord over everything. God is sovereign. And Christ has created, it's through, through Him that all things have come into being, and He providentially holds all things up, and all things point back to Him. And the apologist must be committed to the Lordship of Christ in all areas of his life. And reality. There's nothing in the universe that should be understood apart from God's perspective and sovereignty. This is key. How are you going to argue for the truth of Christianity if you set this aside? If you just say, well, Jesus isn't Lord over everything. There's this little area over here that's outside of his realm. Let's go there and that's our neutral ground. If he's Lord of everything, is there really a neutral ground? It's all his. And this is 1 Peter 3.15. It commands us to do this. Go, go there. Let's go back to this text because it is sort of the, the mission statement for apologetics. Uh, we covered it uh, three weeks ago when we started, I think, first, first class here. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us briefly in, in a nutshell about apologetics. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Before you defend the faith, Christ has to be Lord in your heart and you've got to sanctify that. Set Him apart and acknowledge that truth. Always then, he says, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and fear. So you've got to set Him apart, sanctify Him as Lord in your hearts. If you're a believer, He already is Lord, but you've got to acknowledge that. You cannot go into some kind of 
discussion or debate or whatever with an unbeliever and not have the sense that God is sovereign, that Christ reigns over all things. And so there it is in, in 1 Peter. In fact, this comes up a lot just, just in the basic gospel. Romans 10, 9. Paul speaks of this. He says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Yes, Savior, but Lord. He is your Lord. If, if you're a believer, He is your Lord. This, there's this teaching out there that says Jesus can be Savior, but not be your Lord. And it's not right. It's, it's an error. It's wrong teaching. It leads you to think, well, he saved me, but uh, later he'll become Lord of my life whenever I'm ready. It's just a sort of something in between Calvinism and Arminianism. It's really Arminianism as a whole. Uh, again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So to truly believe Jesus is Lord means that you have the Spirit within you. So, in other words, God has equipped you with everything you need to do apologetics. He's given you the Bible. He's given you His Spirit. And Lord, Jesus is Lord over all things. All right, now that we have those two preliminaries, what's the other presupposition? You have a commitment to and use of the Word of God as our ultimate authority. Well, they're not going to believe that. That's beside the point. If God is God and He gave us His Word and it is without error and it is authoritative, it doesn't matter what they say they believe, that's the standard. Greg Bonson says, God's Word has been seen to be foundational to all knowledge. It has absolute epistemic authority. Epistemic deals with epistemology, the the idea of what can we know? How do we know what is true? How do we know what we know? Absolute, you could say, uh, not knowing authority. And it is the necessary presupposition of all knowledge which man possesses. It's the foundation. And we say we believe that sometimes, but sometimes we set that apart. And we say, this person won't believe the Bible. So I'm going to talk about something else doesn't matter if they believe it or not. Do you do that when you proclaim the gospel? Well, they're not going to believe the gospel, so I'm going to change the message. And I'm going to talk about something else. And that's proclaiming the gospel. No, the gospel comes from Scripture. It has to line up with Scripture. Whatever you say when you're evangelizing has to line up with Scripture or you're not speaking the true gospel. We should think the same way in apologetics. We need to use the Word of God for the reasons that it has been given. So let's look at some of those. Go to Psalm 19. This is a great verse on revelation. Revelation in general and revelation specifically. So Psalm 19. Separates this and it gives us the two types of revelation. There's two types of revelation that God has given us. So look at verse 1 through 6. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The heavens, the sky, the stars, the clouds, the sun, the moon. Everything out there. The planets. That's telling of the glory of God. And the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. It's saying there is a God. He's created it. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. So the seasons and the cycles and the sun coming up and the moon changing, all of these things say something. They say something about God. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So they're not speaking out loud. You can't say the, the sun was talking to me today. Uh, but they say something in the sense of they've been created. Their line has gone through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Does everyone, does everyone see the sky and the earth? Yeah, unless you're blind, born blind. But even then, you can feel around. You can feel the air. You can touch things. So everyone, to the end of the world. And which in them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming up out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. So the sun runs its course. How does it do that? Why does it do that? 
the scripture is saying because God has designed it. God has created it. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun shines on the whole earth. The whole earth. And so there's general revelation. God has declared that he exists, that he is the creator in his creation. It's very clear that's what scripture says. So when you are talking to an unbeliever, they already know that. We'll look later at Romans 1, which explicitly says that. They already know that. Well, that's not what they said. They said they don't believe in God. God's word says they already know it. And I believe God's word over what they say because people twist the truth. Now let's look at the second thing here. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. What's the law of Yahweh? His word, his commandments. And his. we have a new class uh, member here this morning who really is enjoying my teaching. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. It doesn't say that the creation can restore the soul. So what takes priority? Oh, well, it's, it's the written word. The written word of Yahweh. And notice in the, in the first six verses, it's God in general. Everyone acknowledges there is a creator. God is a, a general term for God. But Yahweh is his covenant name. And to his covenant people, Israel in the Old Testament and all those under the New Covenant in the New Testament, to his covenant people, he is given the law, the written word, the testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. So it restores the soul. It gives wisdom. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commander of, a commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold. Creation is beautiful, but the word of God is being elevated Above creation here, because it's the word of God, the direct words of the covenant God to his people. And they're so precious, more than, than gold, than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned. So people are warned not to go into sin. And keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. So he's saying the Bible is our uh, sanctification uh, power and equipment and, and law and everything that we need to live by. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So two types of revelation. We have general creation, special, the Bible. God's special revelation is given to his people. God's general revelation is given to everyone who can see it, which is all mankind. So, if God's word is true, and it's specifically designed to convict of sin, to talk of, or to display his gospel, the only way of salvation is through Christ, to show us sanctification and how we can be sanctified, we need to use that. Now, we can talk about creation, sure, because the Bible talks about creation. But we shouldn't go off into the weeds and start debating about science back and forth, setting the Bible aside. We can talk about science, but the Bible, again, is the presupposition. It is true. All the things that God has said are true. God exists. God is real. We're not going to debate that. Does God debate his existence in the Bible? What's the first verse say? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The Bible has a presupposition, doesn't it? What is it? That God exists. That's the way Moses starts writing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God doesn't have to prove that he exists. He exists, and it's obvious to all. He made sure... And we'll talk about that in Romans 1, that everybody knows that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 2.14. So you might say, well, okay, the, the sky, the, the earth, the stars, everything is declaring that there is a God, that he created all things. Can't we just talk about that? 
Can't we just sort of discuss that instead of going to what Scripture says? Because they're not going to believe what Scripture says. Well, look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. There are many verses that talk about man's ability to think through things. Uh, But this is a nice summary verse right here. Summarizes what the whole Bible says. Uh, Let's go back so we can look at, start in 12. 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we, this is believers, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is from God. So that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. So the Bible, for example, we can understand it as a believer because you have the Spirit. And the Spirit inspired, and this is His Word. And so He makes it clear to us as we study it and use the, the natural abilities He's given us. He also illuminates our mind and so on. But in verse 14, but, the opposite of that, this is adversative, a natural man, someone who's not redeemed, someone who's not regenerate, he's a natural man, he does not accept, your translation might say the things, the LSB says the depths of the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept it. He just says it's not true. Why? For they are foolishness to him. He says, I cannot accept that. I don't accept what you say, Christian. And the Bible says he doesn't want to accept that. And look at the second part. He cannot understand them. He cannot understand the things of God because they are spiritually examined. But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself examined by no one. So if he looks out at creation and you try to say, Look at the trees and, and the, the Krebs cycle. I mean, who could, who could design that but God? And look at the eyeball. It's too complex. You can't evolve from nothing to an eyeball. There's too many little things that go in there. That's all true. But what's he going to say? He's going to say, that's not true that God designed it. That's not true that God created it. He can't accept it. He doesn't even want to. And it's foolishness to him. Because of sin. Look at Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. Now you might say, well, what about the Bible if you can't accept the things of God? Well, yeah, right. When you tell him the Bible, you don't expect he's just going to say, oh, yeah, I'd love to follow that. It says, kill my sin every day. I'm going to put my sin to death. The unbeliever doesn't say that. But it is only the word of God that will chip away and knock his foundation out from under. him. And by the way, that's what happens when you're saved. The Word of God goes out. Maybe you heard it proclaimed. Maybe you read the Bible before you got saved. And eventually, God uses it one time to punch all the way through and destroy your foundation, which is built upon untruths, built upon lies, built upon Satan. Yeah. Sand. Yeah. That's a good one, too. He washes away the house that you built on sand and gives you a new house built on the rock. Uh, Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. These are, these are unbelieving. These are Gentiles. These are people, uh, anybody who's unbelieving, but specifically in context of Romans, Gentiles here. These are men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They suppress it. Sure, creation speaks of God. It tells of the glory of God. Day to day, the sun moves a certain way because God designed it. Stars come up. The constellations tell us that there is a creator. But this says that man suppresses it. All mankind suppresses it. Until you redeem, you suppress it. You push it down like a beach ball underwater. Even though that's going to keep trying to come back up. You're trying to push that aired up beach ball under the pool and keep it down. And it doesn't work because it's the truth of God. And it just keeps wanting to come back up. And it makes you more and more angry. The more you you end up hating God as an unbeliever and you try to suppress the truth. Because in verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. That which is known, that which can be known about God from creation is evident within them. They know it for God made it evident to them. When, When you hear an atheist say, I don't believe in God, you should never Never take them at their word because the Bible is the sure word and it says they know. 
It says they know. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes. Not only do they know that there is a creator, but look at this. They know something about him. Both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. They know God is eternal. They know something about his attributes. Not not in-depth knowledge, but in general. Who could create all this? Has to be a God. Has to be an eternal God. And he's divine. He's not like us. He doesn't have a body. They have been clearly seen. How do we see God's divine nature? How do we see His eternal power? Well, we, we know that that's true because of creation. Because of God has put it there, being understood through what has been made. That's the creation. What has been created. The purpose, the reason God made sure we knew it is so that they are without excuse. No one can say, well, I never, I never had the Bible. I never heard the gospel. Why are you sending me to hell, God? Right here. The creation said there was a God. And even though, verse 21, they knew that, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. And now we see the spiral of sin that happens the rest of chapter 1 of Romans. They said, I don't want to believe in God. I don't want to acknowledge the truth. I'm going to suppress it because that's what sin does to the mind. That's what total depravity does. You suppress it. Our sin nature causes us to want to suppress it as unbelievers. And mankind goes off and worships something else. A bug. An insect. A cow. It's ridiculous. But sin is ridiculous. It makes you stupid. Right? Sin makes you stupid. First time I said that, I was preaching through, I think, Ecclesiastes. And some little kid came up afterwards and said, You said stupid in this sermon. Well, sin makes you stupid. And when, when you use it like that, That's the right way to use it. Don't call your sibling stupid, even though they might be sinning. Um, The Bible uses that word. If you look it up, it's in the Bible. The word stupid as a translation from other words, like moron, moros, foolish. Uh, That's that's an unbeliever. They're foolish. They, They say there is no God, Psalm 14 says. And so, does the atheist really not believe in God? No, they do, because what do they talk about all the time? You know this from what they say, or what they write, or what they publish, right? All they're talking about is God. I don't believe in, you know, I don't believe in the tooth fairy, and I don't go around talking about the tooth fairy all the time, but the atheist always wants to talk about God. They always want to try to disprove God, because they're suppressing the truth. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3.14. This is specifically about the Word of God here. So what are we going to do? They don't, they don't accept the truth. Well, we're going to use God's truth and pray that God will use it to help us and break through that stony heart. 2 Timothy 3.14 Paul's writing to Timothy, Remind them of these things. Solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to dispute about where... Sorry, I'm in chapter 2. 3, 3.14 but you, talking to Timothy, continue in the things you learned and became convinced of. The Bible, the truth of Scripture, the things that Paul has taught Timothy, knowing from whom you learned them. Remember where you got these things. He got them from Paul, but also, verse 15, and that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings. So I've taught you the gospel, the things that we would say are the New Testament uh, truths. They weren't all written down yet. So Paul has taught them. And the Old Testament, the sacred writings, the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a huge statement. It says that the Old Testament alone can point you to Christ. And you can be saved by reading God's word in the Old Testament. So that's the Bible, which makes you Wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Also, now that you're saved, in verse 16, remember all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. It's His words. Even though it's written by men, it's breathed out by God. God is the one who made sure those men would write it. Not that He was speaking to them and they were taking notes, but He's using them, their mind and their life and all these things, and they're under Christ as apostles, and they're writing out Scripture, and they're God's prophets in the Old Testament. It's God-breathed and profitable 
for teaching. If you're going to teach somebody the truth, where do you go? You go to your own mind? Do you go to human philosophy? Do you go to science? The ultimate truth, you're going to go to Scripture. It is profitable. It is useful. It is helpful for teaching. But what else? Reproof for correction, for training in righteousness. To live a godly life, in other words. To be sanctified. You need the Bible. So that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so the objection here is, well, that's for the believer. The man of God being the the pastor, he's got the Bible, he's equipping his people, he's correcting, he's reproving. But they're Christians. But it says every good work. Is apologetics a good work? It's a good work. Because Peter says, when you sanctify the Lord in your hearts, being ready, always ready to give a defense. It is a good work. So the Bible is sufficient, not just for sanctification, but the Bible is sufficient for all parts of our Christian life, including defending the faith. I like what Spurgeon said. Some, some people wouldn't say Spurgeon is a presuppositionalist. I think he was. They didn't use that term until a, a later guy named Van Til, which we'll look at, uh, came along and started using it. And even Van Til didn't like presuppositional uh, in the beginning. But eventually he said, well, that's probably the best uh, label for it. Here's what Spurgeon said. Uh, back in his day, people were trying to defend Christianity. And he said, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. People who are studied, those who went to Cambridge and Oxford. No doubt it's a very proper and right thing to do. That's a good thing to, to, to defend the gospel. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. They're, they're setting it aside and they're going over here to try to defend the gospel. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I would suggest to them, if they would not object, and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him. For he would take care of himself, and the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. We could just say the whole, the whole word of God, too. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy, that was under attack back in his day and still is, or the whole of the Pentateuch, preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, let the lion out, see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. Did God inspire the Bible? Yes. Let the lion out. You know, he says, and we see this today with these other types of apologetic methods. Let's set it aside. Let's put it over there in the cage. And let's defend it over here on these grounds. This is an awesome lion. Let the lion out. Use the scriptures. Speak the scriptures. Doesn't mean you're preaching a sermon when you're doing apologetics. We'll get to method uh, more specifically based on different contexts. We're going to go through, right now it's just all introduction still. How do we do apologetics? Eventually, we're going to start going through different topics. How do you do this with the, the discussion about God and creation and salvation and working through various things? Here's another way we can talk about this, and, and it's defined. Presuppositional apologists, especially Van Til and his apologetical progeny. So we'll come to Van Til in a moment. Have provided for the church a biblical perspective. He says, contemporary, this is uh, George Zimmick, uh, contemporary Christians are indebted to this man, Van Til, and his followers for breaking the apologetical shackles of humanistic philosophies by promoting a scriptural perspective for apologetics. A lot of fancy words to say. Before Van Til brings this out to especially reform people, uh, people are using human reasoning and philosophy. And they've kind of lost the focus on using God's word. You saw it in Spurgeon's day. And he lived 1850s up until uh, 1880s. And here we have Van Til bringing that back in. So again, two main principles. These are like, you could say the negative principles. These are the negative principles you want to remember. No neutrality. Everything in creation is God's. There's no neutral facts. If it's true, that's God's truth. 
There's no neutral things. God created, He owns, He continues to be sovereign over all things. Now we do speak of neutral things as, as opposed to sinful things, like money. Money's neutral. If you love money, you're in sin. But when we speak here of neutral things, we mean that nothing exists that God hasn't decreed and, and brought into existence through His decree. He is sovereign over it all. And number two, no autonomy. As a created being, man has no right to evaluate reality apart from God. You, you cannot play God. What is, what is a person doing when they set aside God and they set aside the Bible? The unbeliever sets all that aside. And what are they actually saying? I'm now the determiner of what is true. That's how postmodernism really, really picks that up and runs with it, right? I have my truth. And you get to decide your truth. And we all have opposing truths. They can't all be true. They can't all be true. And so this idea that we have the right to evaluate what is true, what is right morally, is putting ourselves in the place of God. And you see that in Romans 1. Ultimately, what man did is they set aside God to make themselves God. The creatures. They worshiped the creation which ends up in being themselves. Let's talk about some presuppositionalists from the past here. Uh, again, John Calvin didn't use the term. He didn't call himself that because it wasn't a term being used at the time. He didn't call himself a Calvinist either, did he? Only a few people have had their coffee this morning. Uh, he, he didn't want any people to call him uh, his movement, a Calvinistic movement. He said this is a, the work of God. Uh, bury me in a grave where nobody can find me, which they did. You can't find his grave today. And uh, it took a while before people started saying, well, we're with John Calvin, and then the the system of soteriology, salvation, uh, becomes known as Calvinism uh, over time. Anyway, back to presuppositionalism and apologetics. Calvin focused on the fact that within every person is a sense of deity. Of course he did. That's Romans 1, right? Thus, knowledge of God is possessed by everyone. Everyone already knows that. You don't need to waste your time proving that. They already know that. All people have an innate knowledge of God and His righteous moral law. They already know right from wrong. If you read the rest of Romans 1, especially the last couple of verses there of chapter 1, they already know that. They knew that these things were sinful and they still did them anyway. How did they know that? Because God put it in their hearts. He says in Romans 2 that, that every, even the Gentiles have a law in their heart. God put the knowledge of right and wrong in their heart. And there's a time that you can use that in presuppositional apologetics as well. Uh, total depravity obscures the natural revelation of God. So they know these things, but it, it, this idea that we're born with a sin nature that affects everything. Total depravity means your whole person is affected by sin. It doesn't mean you're totally the worst person ever. It's total in that it's complete. It affects your mind. It affects your soul. It affects your heart. It affects your body. And that muddies the thinking. You're, you're looking with blurry glasses. And some people uh, even sear their conscience so much that they're, very, they're, they're almost completely uh, blacked out with their spiritual vision. If the unbeliever is to be converted, God must work through both special revelation and the testimony of the Spirit. So special revelation we looked at, that's the Bible and the Spirit. The Spirit has to regenerate. The Spirit has to do the work in the heart. Calvin believed in the comprehensiveness of revelation. It's all we need for this task. Here's what uh, John Frame, who's uh, a very good writer on apologetics, he said that Calvin's view of divine sovereignty enables him, for the first time, clearly to declare all things wholly revelational of God. Everything that we know and see and think, everything comes from the revelation of God. Since God's plan alone determines nature, history, and individual life, God is clearly revealed in all of these areas. Thus, Calvin opens the full range of created reality to apologetics. We're not just going to focus on the mind and reason, but all things are God's things. If they're true, that's God's truth. All facts are evidence for God, not merely the facts of causality, teleology, the 
philosophical proofs. So that's Calvin. Now we have the guy who really brought this term out uh, to modern times. Cornelius Van Til was a professor, uh, theology professor, apologetics professor at Westminster uh, Theological Seminary. Westminster is a group of professors who left uh, Princeton because Princeton was going liberal. So they moved to Philadelphia and started their own uh, seminary. And they were trying to continue in that stream of doctrinal truth uh, from the time of Calvin and the Reformation. Van Til believed that there were serious problems with the way apologetics was being done traditionally. He said that compromise God by arguing that his existence is probable. Remember, when you use philosophical proofs, the best you can do is say, to our best probable certain, you can't use certainty, to our best probability or possibility, we can use these arguments to make it probable that God exists. Instead of ontologically, this is ontology as being, and rationally necessary. These things, in other words, it's necessary that God exists or we wouldn't have anything here. It's not just uh, probable. Van Til promoted this presuppositional approach to apologetics on which the Christian presupposes a triune God and his redemptive plan is set forth in the Bible. It's not that no one used this method before, but Anytime in church history you have men who come along who take all that's been written and they study the Bible on their own and they systematize it. They start putting it into a book. And so Van Til did that. He wrote many books. And he's not always the easiest to read, is he? Uh, if you've read Van Til. There are other places I would have you start. But Van Til was the guy who really started to write on this subject. Van Til believed there were serious problems. Uh, did I already read this? That's a duplicate slide, sorry. Here's uh, Colin Brown in a book called Philosophy and the Christian Faith. I don't think Colin Brown is necessarily a presuppositionalist, but he says the task of Christian apologetics is not to try to discover some neutral common ground. So he's certainly talking like a presuppositionalist here. Not a neutral common ground on which the believer and the unbeliever may both stand. For this fails to appreciate that the unbeliever is already aware of God's existence and his own responsibility before God. The task is to force the unbeliever to face up to this and to show that there are no legitimate escape routes. You're trying to say, look, your view, your worldview doesn't even hold up. You know there's a God. You live every day knowing that there's a God and you don't want to admit it. Uh, In other words, it is to lay bare the presuppositions of our thinking. So we say we're using a presuppositional apologetics But realize the unbeliever has presuppositions too. They have assumptions. They have something that they've built their foundation, their building, their structure on. They have a foundation as well. Uh, One more guy here. Some would say he's not. He certainly studied under Van Til, Francis Schaeffer. Some of you may know Francis Schaeffer and and remember him. Uh, He he became involved sort of in the um, evangelical movement. What What was the big political movement of evangelicals? forget the, the term they use for it. The moral majority, yeah. So he becomes involved in that later, but originally he wasn't. Anyway, back to his apologetics. Uh, he studied under Van Til. He had presuppositional elements in his apologetic methodology. And it's, it's probably, some would say, going too far to say he's a, a presuppositionist. I think if you hear his arguments and his reasoning, he certainly is coming from that standpoint, though. And he wrote many books. He, he sort of is much more of a popular level writer, even though not all of his stuff is super easy to read today. It's easier than Van Til's stuff. Um, Schaefer tried to show that non-Christian worldviews are unlivable. Only Christian presuppositions can be lived out consistently. So what he did was go over to was it Switzerland. He, he started this uh, Libri house, place that people could come and stay and study. And he talked to lots of unbelievers coming through there and would hear what they had to say and then ask them questions and, and teach them to Get them to question their own worldviews. For Schaefer, the inconsistencies of the unbeliever needed to be pointed out. You couldn't just let that keep going. He would listen to what they had to say, and then he would point out how they were being inconsistent in their thinking and their life. In a figurative sense, the Christian must remove the roof off of the unbeliever's house so that the rain and wind could come in. You do this through asking questions. You do this through teaching and proclaiming the things that are in Scripture. And... Suddenly, 
they start to realize, yeah, that doesn't really hold up. It doesn't work out. So the idea here is you take the roof off, and now the rain can come in, and, and things are get washed clean, and you can sort of see uh, what, is, what is going on in their thinking. Only after showing the bankruptcy of the unbeliever's worldview should the gospel be presented. So the problem we have, I think, in, in modern America, as we just think, oh, we're just going to proclaim the gospel to them, and they're, they're just ready to believe. Well, there was a time when people presupposed God more than they do today. But we're certainly at a time now, and probably always have been, but more so, where people are actively rejecting God, actively pushing back against Christianity. And you can't just launch into uh, some kind of watered-down gospel presentation. Or even, the, the you know, did you know that um, Christ came to die for sinners? And expect that that's somehow going to punch through. Maybe it will if they're in a very difficult uh, circumstance and and things have really happened in their life where they're searching uh, in a sense of wanting something to hold on to. But in most cases, they're just going to slap that off. You know, it's going to knock it down. You've got to show how their worldview is bankrupt. And you don't have to be the most skilled apologetics attorney in the world, but some questions, some things and teachings from Scripture will help you. Schaeffer believe that Christians have common ground with unbelievers because we are all made in the image of God. This again is going back to the fact that we all know there's a God and that he created us. Both believers and unbelievers share moral and rational absolutes. Come back to that in the next few weeks. The law of non-contradiction was important to Schaeffer's approach. This law does not come from Aristotle, but from human beings made in the image of God. If you don't know what non-contradiction is, We'll also come back to that as a tool much later. But we only got three minutes left. So, um, Adherence of the presuppositional method. So I mentioned Van Til. Van Til had two students who really took this further and wrote lots of books. They slightly had some disagreements, but in general they follow Van Til. That's John Frame and Greg Bonson. Uh, they both taught at different seminaries. Uh, I think John Frame actually might still be teaching at, at Reformed Theological Seminary, but he is getting up there in age. Greg Bonson has already gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, so here's some books by these men. Van Til, The Defense of the Faith, is sort of the, the gist of presuppositionalism. I wouldn't start there. I would start with uh, John Frame's Apologetics. Uh, it used to be Apologetics to the Glory of God. Now it's Apologetics, A Justification of Christian Belief. And so we have that one, and we have uh, Always Ready by Bonson in the bookstore. And so I'm sure Derek Kennedy will be over there uh, recommending these various books to you. Uh, Frame's a little easier to read. Bonson's uh, a little bit more philosophical in some areas, not, not in a bad way. He's a Ph.D. in philosophy, and so he uses some, some bigger arguments than you might find in Frame. All right, here's the, big, here's the big critique of presuppositionalism. And we won't be able to get all through this today, but isn't this circular reasoning? You're assuming the truth. You're assuming the truth that you've set out to prove. And it works like this. You say, the Bible's the Word of God. And they say, why? And you say, well, because the Bible tells us that it's the Word of God. How do you know that? Because the Bible's infallible. It wouldn't lie. Therefore, the Bible's the Word of God. And so, in philosophy and even in apologetics, this is the, the unforgivable sin to have circular reasoning. Because you're not linear, you're not proving A, B, C, D, you're, you're just arguing in a circle. Well, this can be answered very simply that everyone has ultimate presuppositions that cannot be proven. Everyone does. Every religious system every philosophical system, when you get down to what they believe, they're either resting it on themselves or someone else, which is mankind, or some false god. Whenever a person argues for the truth of something, they are making assumptions. So we're not the only ones saying that there's an ultimate presupposition. Everyone has an ultimate belief. Here's how John Frame says it. Everyone else Reasons the same way. Every philosophy must use its own standards in proving its conclusions. Otherwise, it's simply inconsistent. It's inconsistent. So if I, if I say, if an if evolutionist comes up and they say, well, I believe evolution is true. 
I say, well, how do you know that? Have you gone out and conducted studies since the beginning of time? <laughs> Have you, were you there when God, no, no, no. I, I know this because my professor in college told me. Well, how does he know that? Well, he knows that because he went to this other college and they told him that when he got his degree. Well, how did they know that? Well, they got that from their textbooks. Well, who wrote the textbooks? Well, some men wrote the textbooks. And eventually, where are we going to go? Mankind told mankind, therefore it's true, right? And we're just putting our ultimate presupposition on men, on humankind, to determine truth. Whenever a person... Uh, sorry, I'm already done with that. All right, last slide here, and then we'll have to stop. Uh, those who believe that human reason is the ultimate authority in all matters must assume that human reason is the ultimate authority. That's the example I just gave. Those who believe that experience, this is empiricism, what I can experience, what I can taste, touch, smell, is the ultimate authority in all matters, must assume that experience is the ultimate authority. So everyone has their own belief system, and they're assuming that's the ultimate authority. We'll finish this up with a couple more slides next week, and then we'll get into, I think, the first um, topic to look at, God and creation. How do we talk to an unbeliever about God and creation and defend the faith presuppositionally. Lord, I thank you for our time this morning. Help us to stand on the word of God. It is the lion in the cage. We got to let it out, Lord. Too many Christians today set the Bible aside. They don't know the scriptures. They don't use the scriptures properly. It's the sword of the spirit. And so let us use it as you have intended, Lord, and ultimately glorify you even in our apologetics. We pray that you would grant that to us in Jesus' name. Amen.